Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27 and going through chapter 2, verse 4. And as you turn, let me pray. Father in heaven, we need you. We need you now, even in this moment. Uh, We know that you reveal yourself to us for our good. And so we pray that as we look at your word now, as you continue to show us who you are and what you desire, that we indeed would be open and humble, that you would conform us more and more into the people you want us to be for our good and for your glory. Amen. In his 2010 memoir entitled, A Journey, My Political Life, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, Tony Blair, tells a story about a friend whose parents were immigrants. They were Jews from Europe who came to America in search of safety. His parents lived and worked in New York, and they were not well off. In fact, his father died when he was rather young. His mother lived on for many years, and in time, Mr. Blair's friend became rather successful and even became wealthy. He used to offer to his mother to travel abroad outside of the United States with some frequency, but she never accepted. She did not want to leave the shores of the United States of America. When eventually she died, they went back to recover her safety box and found where she kept her valuable jewelry. They also found another box, a box they had no knowledge of, a box which had no key. And so they drilled it open. And they wondered what kind of precious jewel might be left in this box. And as They cracked the safe and they opened the lid. There was wrapping paper and then more wrapping and finally an envelope. Intrigued, they opened it. And in the envelope were her U.S. citizenship papers. Nothing more. This was the jewel. This was more precious to her than any other possession. This is what she treasured most, citizenship. In our current political climate, there are a lot of conversations about citizenship, (laughs) about the value of citizenship or not. I wonder what kind of value you put on your citizenship. Presidential candidates are starting to talk about it again as the election cycle begins. Congressmen and women are debating it. And even in some churches, some pastors are talking about it. After all, we live in perhaps the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. And citizenship is a prize to be had. With it comes great privilege. With it comes wonderful responsibility. In the book of Philippians, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul addresses some citizens of the greatest empire in the world during that time, the Roman Empire. And he writes to them about citizenship, but he doesn't tell them what they expect to hear. And so 
look at it with me in Philippians chapter 1. We pick up in verse 27, and this is what the apostle writes. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absence, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and here that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verse 27, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the controlling idea of everything he says in the verses after it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when you look at that statement in the original Greek, it helps to understand what he means by this manner of life. Because the main verb used there, let your manner of life be, refers to or has the nuance of a specific type of citizenship. You might summarize what he says this way. You might say, let your manner of life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippi was a Roman colony that was proud. They weren't always part of the empire, but they were now. Their status in the Roman Empire gave them tremendous opportunity. It gave them wealth. It gave them privilege. And it would be easy for the inhabitants of Philippi to proudly express their loyalty and their fealty by saying something like, I am proud to be a Philippian. I am proud to be a Roman, the greatest empire in the world. After all, citizenship in the Roman Empire was the prize of the known world, and it afforded its citizens unique status the globe over. But Paul isn't telling them to be a good Philippian. <laughs> He's not reminding them to be a good Roman. He is reminding them that they have a counter-citizenship a higher citizenship, a citizenship that is prized even among the greatest of worldly prizes in citizenship. They belong to a different kingdom. 
They have a different king and they are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. The transfer of citizenship is something that we see throughout the New Testament. Here's just a couple of examples. A few chapters later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians have a unique citizenship. It's the citizenship of the kingdom of God in heaven and it is represented here on earth. And it is this citizenship that is far greater than any national citizenship or identity here on planet earth. And so as we look at a passage like this, Paul is not telling us to be good Americans. <laughs> He's not even telling us to be good Christian Americans. He's not telling us to be good Ohioans. And he's not even telling us to be good Christian Ohioans. He points us to a citizenship that is in heaven. And I think we can all understand the expression of what it means to live in a way or be a citizen in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It doesn't mean that we earn the gospel by being good enough to being a citizen of heaven, earning God's favor or depending on how we live. It does mean that how we live points to the value that we place on the gospel. If we live in such a way that points to a belief that the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ forgives sinners and reconciles people to God, paints a picture of God's glory for all the world to see and that the redemption that he gives is the greatest treasure in all of the world, then that points to a life that reflects a certain type of worth. <laughs> if, conversely, we say or live in such a way that our citizenship does not reflect the worthiness of the gospel. That's to say that our life reflects that we think that God's saving grace is a, merely the stuff of spiritual inspiration, or it's an addition to the agenda of my life, or it's a nice piece that helps me in some ways. We actually display that the gospel is cheap <laughs> and we don't live in a manner worthy of it. And as an extension, we probably don't really care that much about our citizenship. Let your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Show his infinite value and worth in the way that you live your life. Show that he is the treasure to be prized and that your redemption is the greatest of value to you. Let your heavenly citizenship be shown on earth today. That's the thrust that Paul is getting at. 
And so how do you do that? How do you live as a citizen worthy of the gospel? He gives us four ways. The first, if you look at it with me, is found in verse 27. The first two actually are. The first one we see is to stand firm in one spirit. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. For the Philippians, their power and their steadfastness in life was not due to the fact that they merely reached down deep inside with some sort of mental toughness or physical resolve. The one spirit that Paul is referring to is not merely one spirit of the age, a sort of general agreement of we all have the same spirit or ethos about things. He's referring directly to the Holy Spirit of God. And we know that because every time he uses this phrase, he's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit who brought these Philippians new life convicted them of sin, made the scripture come alive to them, empowered them to stand for the gospel in the midst of pressure. Now they needed to abide in this Holy Spirit all the more and to trust as they went through their days in the midst of difficulty that the work of God in their life begins with God, it continues with God, and it will finish with God as the Spirit works through the lives of his people. So he says, live out your heavenly citizenship on earth today and do it in the spirit. The second way that we live out our heavenly citizenship worthy of the gospel is found in verse 27 as well. He says that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The second way is that we strive for the faith of the gospel. Again, referring to the original language here helps understand the thrust. The word to strive is the word in Greek, soon athleo. You might hear a word in there that you know. Soon is just the prefix. We can take that off. The word athleo, that's the word that we get athlete from. An athlete strives. <laughs> An athlete contends in the contest that they're in. Athletes aren't lazy if they're good athletes. Athletes can't coast if they're going to succeed. They sprint toward the finish line. An athlete jumps toward the basket. An athlete chases with vigor after their competitor. An athlete throws with great exertion. An athlete strives. So Christians, likewise, were to strive and contend. Our striving, Paul says, is done side by side with other Christians. This is not an individual sport. <laughs> this is a team sport. It's not a solo effort. We need each other. The family of God comes together, works together, partners together, lives together, strives together. And what do we strive for? Well, we strive, Paul says, for the faith of the gospel. This is not simply that we strive for our own personal faith. 
and personal spiritual growth. Though we do, and though God blesses you when you do, he meets you in your places of desire and meets you in your places of effort as you approach him and read his word and he guides and he blesses. But this is an outward looking statement. We strive broadly for the faith which means that we strive so that the faith of the gospel, the good news of God, is known throughout all of the world because it is the greatest treasure and prize. It's the thing that will bring the greatest joy in your life. It is the thing that will provide the answers that people are looking for. It is the thing that every single person needs. And so why do we as a church family devote tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to send missionaries all over the world, to support them, to encourage them, to invest financial resources in them, to train them. Why do we do that? Because we strive, we're striving for the faith of the gospel. Why do we commit commit hard work and resources into proclaiming God's word on the radio throughout this region and beyond? Because we're striving, we're contending for the faith of the gospel. Why do we have people on campus at our local university five days a week? Because we're striving, we're contending for the faith of the gospel. Why do we train you, all of you, in a church-wide training in the two ways to live so that, or with the hopes that you would spread out throughout this region day after day after day, as little lights in the world in a very dark place with a message of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? So that like athletes, we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so take a step back with me in the book of Philippians and think of the logic The logic we started last week that we're continuing this week. Verse 20 of chapter 1. I want Christ to be honored in my body, whether by life or death, Paul says. Verse 21. For, because, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, because to live is Christ, he's the most valuable, he's the most worthy, he's the one in which I get my joy. I want that same thing for you, verse 25, so I stay for your progress and joy. Not just my joy, but for your joy. Not just for my growth, but for your growth. And now, in verse 27, you strive for the faith of others so that they may glory in Christ just as you are. We strive for faith, the faith, for the glory of Christ in the life of others. Is that what you're striving for? The Iditarod sled dog race is called the last great race. And it is fascinating. It is the yearly race in early March from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska, in which the mushers take their team of 14 dogs over 900 miles in the winter. Running 10 dogs at a time, each dog has a role. They strive 
together through the terrible conditions of northern Alaska to the finish line. It will take them 8 to 15 days, depending upon the weather and their health, but they must do it together. The dogs are positioned in rows of two, and each dog has a specific role depending upon the order in the line or the pack. And the musher may change the order and the roles throughout the course of the race, but where they are informs their role. The first two dogs are called the lead dogs. They set the pace. The next two dogs are called the swing dogs, and they help to steer the pack and the sled for those wide turns that they have to make. Next comes six, six dogs, which are called the team dogs. These dogs together are carrying the bulk of the load. They're the ones who are pulling and contending uniquely. And the last two dogs are called the wheel dogs. They're usually the largest. They carry a unique weight and have a unique agility because they're the closest ones to the sled. In between 900 and 1,000 miles, day after day, in harsh conditions, in freezing cold, it's a picture of a team that is striving together. Because what happens if one, of the two one or two of the dogs don't strive with the rest of the team? Well, they slow the whole team down. <laughs> what happens if one or two of the dogs don't know their role in the team? Well, they compromise the whole team. Because this race is long, because it's hard, because it's painful. They must strive together. You know who doesn't feel any of the difficulty or the weight of the pull or the cold of the snow on their paws? The dogs in the truck. <laughs> they might be like technically part of the team, but they're not striving. They're not even in the race. But for the ones that strive, they move toward glory and they need each other to do it. They strive together. The same is true for Christians. Striving toward the glory of God as citizens of the kingdom, as the greatest treasure is made known. But we must do it together. <laughs> Your heavenly citizenship is able to be lived out right here on earth today. And that brings us to the third way that Paul tells us to do this. The first, of course, is to stand together, stand firm. The second is to strive. The third is what we might say fearlessness in the presence of enemies. Look at verse 28 through 30. He says that I may see you not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and here that I now still have. You will suffer. <laughs> I don't know how. 
I don't know when. Paul indicates to the Philippians that they will suffer in, the, in some way by the extension of what he's doing. And that extension, I think, goes all the way to all of those who would call themselves Christians and are striving and contending as well. This suffering is not just the suffering of the physical illnesses that is common to humankind. We all have those types of sufferings. This suffering is directly, he says, for the sake of Christ. We've said earlier in the book of Philippians, when the gospel confronts the conventional wisdom of the day or the common practices of a culture, there will be those who try to silence it. And how do you silence the gospel? The way you attempt to silence the gospel is by silencing the ones who proclaim it. How do people try to silence the gospel or the ones who are proclaiming it? Well, throughout history, they've used the same things again and again. Throughout history, there's been attempts to silence the gospel through social marginalization, through physical threats, through physical torture, murder, imprisonment, stalling or hijacking of careers, personal insult, slander, and much, much, much more. But throughout history, Christians have considered it a privilege to suffer that they would be the ones who are allowed to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ for two reasons. They've held it as a privilege to suffer for Christ because they know that it points to and illustrates his glory all the more. And number two, it is a sign, as Paul says, of their salvation. (laughs) I glory in the Lord Jesus Christ so much He's the greatest treasure and prize. I'm willing to experience pain, difficulty, slander, and even greater suffering than that for him because he is worthy and I have the benefit of knowing I'm saved when I suffer for him. He promises that. And so fearlessness in the face of such suffering, Paul says, is the mark of of living out heavenly citizenship here on earth and it displays salvation and it displays the destruction or the judgment of enemies that will come. And so how do you do that? (laughs) How do you prepare for such suffering and build fearlessness in your life? Here's just a couple of ways. There's many. Here's a couple ways to prepare. The first is that you need to decide in advance how you will respond to threats or persecution when they come your way. You need to decide in advance. You can decide right now. You can make a commitment. You can think about how all of the options before you and decide in advance. Why is that important? Because if you wait until it's upon you, then standing firm And fearless becomes harder. (laughs) But if you are oriented by a conviction, and that conviction drives you, fearless courage is what follows. Training now results in strength later, just like an athlete. (laughs) The second way you can prepare is to realize that your perspective and expectations in this life are important. 
This is very important for us. We live in a time of great comfort, (laughs) great ease. We live in a time of tremendous resources. We can literally buy comfort at almost any moment, at least physically, but maybe not in your soul. But if your expectation in life is that you will experience some form of persecution or difficulty, because you are contending or striving for the gospel, then you will be more mentally and spiritually prepared when it comes. And let's just be clear. This is, I'm not talking about a victim mentality like, oh, woe is me. The poor Christians always get picked on. Here's just the next option. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a preparation and an outlook on life that says there's glory in suffering for Jesus. He says that I'm going to do it. And in the midst of the most comfortable time of my life, I might even be called to suffer for him now. And I expect it to come. And lastly, thirdly, how do we prepare? There's a lot of ways. Here's just another one. It goes right in line with the text. We rely on each other. We strive together. We be fearless together. We support each other. We encourage each other. We help each other. Because you will suffer Paul says that fearlessness is the sign of your salvation. And so live out your heavenly citizenship on earth today. There's a fourth way to live out this citizenship. The fourth way is found in those first four verses of chapter two. Let's remind ourselves of it briefly. He says this. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I love the beauty of that short little section, the beauty of that first phrase. If there's any encouragement in Christ, we all who know the Lord Jesus our Savior have experienced different encouragements through our relationship with Christ. Encouragement that God loves you, that God wants to be near to you, that God wants to know you and wants you to know him, that God wants to forgive you, that God is gentle and kind with you, and that God wants to be with you forever. There is great encouragement in Christ. There's also comfort from love. No longer anxious that you won't be forgiven, experiencing peace in the midst of difficulty, having joy no matter what the circumstances are, because you intimately know the one who stands over all space and time and who controls it all. And no matter how dark the days are, no matter how hard it looks for you, no matter how uncertain that the future seems, his love is directed toward you. (laughs) He could direct his love anywhere. And he does it toward you. There is comfort in love. And if there's any participation in the spirit, 
that you feel and experience God in your life as the Spirit is the one who equips you to do good works and provides opportunities for you to serve the Lord and to share the gospel and gives you eyes to see and a soft heart that makes you alive to God as you read his word and are built up and nourished by it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort and love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, if you've experienced any benefit and joy and hope from the Lord, then be of the same mind, <laughs> the same love, a full accord, Paul says. Live in unity and humility. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. And that's hard because all of us have the intuitive desire to be self-centered. <laughs> but humility is the disposition of a Christian because of what Christ has done. If you are prideful, listen very carefully, if you are prideful, it will stall your spiritual growth. If you live with a prideful disposition, it will even derail your ability to pursue God's agenda. But if you're humble, if you're teachable, you will be able to thrive and pursue growth in the Lord Jesus for your good and for the good of others in ways that you don't even fully comprehend. I love the story that is attributed to the reformer Martin Luther about the two mountain goats who meet each other on the narrow ledge just wide enough for one of the animals. <laughs> on the left was a high sheer cliff. On the right, was the valley and a deep lake. And the two face each other. What should they do? They could not back up. It would be too dangerous. They could not turn around because the ledge was too narrow. Now, if the goats had no more sense than many people, they would stand head to head, face to face, and they would butt each other in the head until both of them fell off the side of the mountain down into the lake. But that's not what they do. Luther reminds us that the goats have a better sense than this. One of them lays down on the trail and lets the other one literally walk right over them. And both of them are safe. Live out your heavenly citizenship on earth today. Citizenship is a unique and important thing. Citizenship is part of our identity. It's an expression of a value system. Citizenship can be a reflection on a place or of a place. It requires a following of a leader and a commitment to people, to other people, citizenship. If you're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven, but you can live out that citizenship on earth today. 
John Hess Yoder was a missionary in Asia, and he said, while serving in Laos, I discovered an illustration of the kingdom of God and citizenship. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in border areas. Those who ate short-grained rice built their houses on stilts and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long-grained rice built their houses on the ground and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined their nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. So it is with us. We live in the world, but part of God's kingdom, we are able to live according to the kingdom standards and values of our true citizenship. May it be with you and may it be with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for clarity about who we are even in this world. God, we confess that so often we strive for the things that are right in front of us or that we find our most treasured citizenship to be our national citizenship here in this country or we conflate that national citizenship with some kind of heavenly citizenship as if the two are dependent upon each other. God, thank you today that you call us citizens of heaven even while we're here on earth. Help us, empower us, inspire us, give us resolve as we live accordingly for our good and your glory. Amen.